with our heads bowed, please. Our Father, we're thankful that you have preserved your revelation. You've given it into history to us, that you've constantly preserved it. And we ask tonight particularly that your Holy Spirit give us a sense of appreciating your work in preserving the text that we have before us, preserving it from all enemies, preserving it from the powers of darkness that would suppress it, twist it, pervert it, uh, destroy it. We thank you that you have been victorious and will continue to be so. Through Christ's name. Getting uh, back to the uh, framework that we've been working through. Whoops. I guess we need the screen now. Okay. Um, This last event, um, we want to finish so that we can get into uh, what we should have started back last month, which was um, the Gospels and the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ came in a stage of history. And we can't emphasize enough that you've got to read the Bible in the sequence in which it was written. God has a lesson plan and it's in sequence. And there's a reason why two-thirds of the revelation that God has given man preceded the coming of His Son. It's all there so we can develop the categories. We have the background to interpret Jesus Christ. He comes out of all of this. So that's why we spent this time, and I really want to finish um, this last event, the restoration, when Israel came back only partially into the land. And there's four truths that summarize this act of history. So, uh, you might want to jot these down in your notes. Uh, they're not plain the way I wrote them. This is first draft revision. Um, but as I've taught it, I think we can come to these four basic conclusions about the restoration. Keep in mind, this is a partial restoration. All of the Jews were not restored to the land. Partial restoration. Four things. First, this partial restoration is a down payment on the ultimate, greater, and future and total restoration of Israel. It's a demonstration historically that God can bring the Jews back into the land when He chooses and under the right conditions. The Gentile powers may be in array against it. Surely the superpowers of the day, Babylon and Media Persia, could have, if they wanted to, have stopped any Jewish uh, re-immigration into the land. It was a miracle that God worked through these powers to allow His people to come back into the land. But the thing that you want to notice, preparatory to Jesus, is that it is the Jews that are still the center of the prophetic picture. It is still Israel. The church isn't on the scene. Church is not going to be on the scene all during the life of Christ. Church is not here. So we can't read back from us. We are a, another factor in the program of God. This is still the Jews. This is still Israel. And it's still the prophecies related to Israel. So the first thing is, it's a down payment on the greater restoration to come. Secondly, and remember we developed from the law the blessings and the cursings. 
And when things got into this exile period, the kingdom's in decline, you remember it was cursing, 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 discipline, discipline, discipline. So the second thing is, this shows hope for the survival of Israel. That in spite of all the cursings and the disciplines and the horrible sufferings that God brought upon his people, the hope is that eventually he will build his kingdom through this nation. The third point about the exile is by bringing the Jews back into the land, the Messiah could have a nation to come to. If the Jews had been dispersed at the end of the exile, to whom would the Messiah come? A group of people living in a ghetto somewhere in, the, in Palestine? So you have a nation to which the Messiah is going to come. And that's provided by this partial restoration. A fourth thing that we want to notice is that the restoration is to a geographical location, the land of Israel. The land of Israel is literal, it is political, you can measure it, you can map it, it is the site of God's actions historically. So this verifies that God at the end of the Old Testament is still working with the same land that he started in Genesis 12 getting Abraham to. Then we said in, in pages 78, 79 about Daniel and we went through the apparent conflict that Daniel had figuring out how could there be four kingdoms stretching over a long distance and yet the 70 years were up. And we pointed out the other thing about Daniel was that he prayed a confession and repentant prayer for the nation. So when this restoration happened, it was not the restoration of the same character of rebellious people that were kicked out of the land here. The people that came back into the land were humble by the discipline. And Daniel expresses the spirit that was involved. They were repentant. And they recognized that they had screwed up. And God was now restoring them. It wasn't an arrogant attitude that they had. It certainly wasn't any of this stuff when they came back. And then we said, uh, last time, we said that this, this is the last of the Old Testament prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and those men have to be writ, read in terms of this period. And you remember we said there was dual themes, the same dual theme you see again and again in the Old Testament. You have human responsibility and you have divine promise. So in all three of those books, you have them chastening the nation as prophets, convicting the, the, they're convicting the people of violating God's will. And at the same time, they're giving them hope that God's promises will remain true. Okay, and then we, uh, at the conclusion of the hour last week, we went into, on page 80 and 81, we went into the closing of the canon. And we made the point that the prophetic ministry uh, ended somewhere in this period. There were no more prophets. And that's why we said, if you look at the quote on page 81 from 1 Maccabees, that quote shows you how the people were aware they didn't have any prophets. That's why there's in that verse 46, they don't know what to do with the altar and they say, they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do. Well, obviously that shows you that they were not um, sensing that there was any prophet around. Which also tells you that they could sense when there was one around. Now, how could they do that? 
Uh, I don't know. Um, it's, it's a mystery of how they, they, they became aware of this, but the, the awareness of a prophet uh, was sensed by the people. It wasn't something spooky. It was that he passed those two tests, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Okay, so the end of the prophecy, the, the prophetic voice became quiet. And the scripture was closed. The canon necessarily collected, but the text was fixed at that point. There was no new scripture being written. And then we dealt on page 81 and 82. We mentioned a little bit about the transmission of the text. And I drew you a little diagram. Let me just review that for a moment. This figures in the New Testament, by the way, so that's why we want to cover it. That if you visualize a map with Babylon over here, Palestine here, Egypt here, Mediterranean Sea, um, Persian Gulf. Well, that's what Babylon would be over here then. Um, in Babylon, you have the, uh, the Jews that were, were um, exiled there. They developed communities, they stayed there, and they transmitted a certain text type. Ezra comes over here to Palestine with the Jews that are being restored to the land. And we showed you verses where uh, Ezra modernized the text, he, he ex exegeted the text, he explained the text, and there appears to have been a type of text there. Then this text apparently got taken down into Egypt where it was translated into Greek. So you have Greek, you have Hebrew, and you have Hebrew. Later on, what happens is that the text in Babylon becomes the official text. Now, right around 70, between 70 and 100 AD, this text here, this one that was in Babylon, takes over and becomes the official Jewish text. Now, that happened in, say, let's just say 100. Now, it also turns out, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that we have examples of this text. And we have examples of that text at 100 B.C. So, let's draw these two timelines now. 100, here's 0, minus 100, plus 100. So, you have a 200-year period in here. And during that 200-year period, there were lots of different text types floating around. And they're quoted, and they're alluded to in the New Testament. On page 82 of the notes, I took Isaiah 53, and I give you an example of what those three text types look like. And I do that so that you can get a sense of what we mean when we say variations in the text. We're not talking some massive difference here. We're talking pronouns, spellings, and that sort of thing. That's what we're talking about. That kind of thing in the text. All right? So, somewhere between 100 and 100, 100 B.C., 100 A.D., things began to, to sort out. And finally, this side of 100 A.D., there's one basic Old Testament text. <clears throat> now, this is just a kind of a, a thing to remember. Mentioned it last time. <clears throat> but when people talk about um, you may be in a gospel conversation with someone and they'll mention to you that, well, you can't really be sure, you Christians, that you have the text of the Bible. I mean, good night. Uh, it was written centuries before this book that we have. And 
you, you can argue this two ways, positively and negatively. What you can do is, is say, oh, okay. In other words, you're telling me that you won't accept any ancient book unless you have a contemporary text. Well, now let's throw out Aristotle, let's throw out Plato, let's throw out all the other ancient texts, Josephus. We don't have any of those texts around. We don't even have a fraction of what the Bibles are. And a lot of biblical texts have been transmitted down through history. And we have fragments going far back. If you want this, Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands of Word, those kind of books will give you some specifics. But just beware. Don't, don't buy into that little objection. It's not true. And, and usually when you challenge people on that, it turns out they've never read. They heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone or something. Okay, tonight now, we want to go to page 83, and we want to start building the doctrine that comes out of this period of time. All the other periods, uh, you can visualize the historical event and realize that there was real doctrine that came out of them. And in the case of the Restoration, we're just going to look at two, two areas, two categories of teaching. One has to do with the preservation of the text. We want to look at that a little more clearly. And then we want to look at prayer, thinking of Daniel's prayer and the prayer of people during a period of time when there's not a lot of miracles going on, the periods when God is, appears to be silent. So on page 83, we start with the first of these two. We're going to talk now about the preservation of the text and what happened in this period of, of the silence of God. If you look on um, page 83, down at the bottom, um, there are, in the doctrine of canon, of the canon, uh, the canon, by the way, being defined is not something that shoots bullets. The canon here is uh, talking about the body of Scripture. Now, we want to start off reviewing there's three previous truths about the canon that we studied way back when we took them at Mount Sinai, when God spoke. The first one is that you can't have a contract without what? A copy of it, right? So, if God is going to make a contract, it's going to be a copy of the contract. So, the idea of a copy of the contract is implicit in having a contract. So, generalizing. The concept of a canon comes out of the concept of a covenant that God makes with man. Why, why does God make contracts? Remember, why do we make contracts? It's usually because we want to measure behavior of the two parties to the contract. It's a behavioral yardstick by which you can evaluate uh, what went on in history. And so, God gives the text of Scripture, the canon that outlines the contract and the terms and preserves the witness to the behavior subsequently in the centuries of what happened. What did man do? And what did God do? All of it's preserved in the canon of Scripture. So the first thing about canon we've already learned is that a canon flows naturally and by necessity out of the idea of a covenant. Got to have both of them together. Second thing that we studied last time. We, we mentioned uh, in the Q&A discussion we had, we, we were talking about this, and this has to do with the Protestant-Roman Catholic difference. Um, the second point here is 
you have to look at the human and the divine source of the canon together. Human and divine source. Now, here's the argument of Rome. Rome argues that Mother Church authored the Scripture. And since Mother Church authored the Scripture, then Mother Church is the final interpreter of the Scripture. See? And it sounds impressive. I mean, you could build an impressive case. Didn't the Church give us the New Testament? Okay. Now, when you get caught in this kind of thinking, think back a minute. In the Old Testament, what was the human tool that generated the Old Testament? It wasn't the Church. It was Israel. Okay, so it was Israelite prophets that gave us the Scripture. Now, once the Scripture was given, was Israel free to change the Scripture? Or was the Scripture like concrete? Once you mixed it, once you mixed the cement and water and gravel, it hardened up and became a standard. Well, that's the point. So, just forget about the church, Rome, and Protestantism. And let's go back to the Old Testament and think. In the Old Testament, the Scripture came and according to Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, it became the standard by which all subsequent prophets had to adhere. So, we have the standard given through the human instrument of Israel, but it's God giving it through Israel, and therefore it's God's Word, and Israel herself has to submit to that. It's an analogy with a human being having a baby. The mother has a baby. She carries the baby. The baby's produced by her, her body and her, and her husband. But once the baby is born, the mother hasn't got the right to take its life. Once, once it's conceived, the mother doesn't have the right to take its life. It's something that is a transaction that's happened. It's something new. Who gave that? God did. But you, could, you don't argue that because the mother made the baby, therefore the mother has total control over it. And yet, that seems to be the essence of the Roman position. Because the church authored the New Testament, the church has the right to interpret the New Testament the way the church wants to interpret it. Well, in the Old Testament, uh, I refer you on bottom page 83, those two tests. That shows you that the Scripture, once in coming into existence, stays as its own authority. Now, in the New Testament, there's an analog to that argument. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, here's Paul, the human instrument of a lot of New Testament epistles that talk about the gospel. Now, in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 1, just look at this sentence. Just look at this sentence and think about it for a minute. The Apostle Paul, is he the church? Yeah, he's a, one of the apostles and foundations of the church, right? Is the church producing the, the gospel? Yes, through Paul here at this point. But what does he say in verse 8 and 9? He says, even though we, the apostles... And any good Roman Catholic theologian would tell you that, you know, he, he's not a par here up here with the Pope. He's up on the authority chain. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, what's the internal logic of that sentence? Can Paul change his mind? Once he has taught the gospel and it's been authenticated, can even Paul change it? No, he can't. So can the church change it? No, it can't. Once the gospel comes into existence, the church must submit to the Bible. The Bible, not the church, 
is the final authority. And that's the Protestant point. It's not that we don't like the church. Not like we're not saying there's a lot of things difficult in the scriptures. But we're simply saying the church has got to be submissive to the authority of the scripture once the scripture comes into historic existence. And verse 9 is the damnation. I say unto you, if any man is preaching unto you a gospel contrary, let him be accursed. That's the curse on anybody who would conflict with the Bible. So that's why we as Protestants hold the supremacy of the Scripture, not the supremacy of the church. All right, that's the second point, uh, third point of the uh, second point of the canon. First point is that the canon is, a, is, is implicitly implied by the idea of a covenant. Second point is that whereas the Scripture and the canon come into existence through a historical means, once it comes into existence, it's the authority for that historical means. It becomes supreme. The third thing about the canon, and we mentioned down the bottom of page 83, that, that's two tests. We went over those. We won't go over those tonight in the interest of time. But Deuteronomy 13 and 18 become the tools to measure the internal consistency of the canon. How, you ask, did Israel know canonical texts from non-canonical texts? I mean, I just quoted 1st Maccabees here, right? 2nd Maccabees, 1st Enoch, all these other books. I mean, how come they're not in the canon? Well, there may be other reasons, but one of the reasons is because much, much, there are sections in these books that are not in theological linkage with the Old Testament. They have to be Mosaic. The Mosaic standard holds. Isaiah had to be Mosaic. Jeremiah had to be Mosaic. Daniel had to be Mosaic. Haggai had to be Mosaic. Or they flunked the test. There has to be an internal logical harmony with the Word of God. So the canon is logically harmonious. Now, that shouldn't be a big mystery. What are we saying when we're saying the canon is harmonious? We're saying that God is internally consistent. If God is speaking, he doesn't tell us one thing in one point and another thing in another. He doesn't change his mind. God is perfectly rational. Now, that's a hard message for our generation. Anything that is so taking over our culture is this anti-rational, mystical moves. How I feel. No matter how you feel. Even our hymns are filled with this stuff. How I feel about Jesus. It's irrelevant how you feel about Jesus. He's not going to stop being Jesus because you don't feel well. He's still king of kings. It doesn't make any difference. So it's not feelings. It's not emotions. It's the word of God that has rational consistency. Whether we feel like it today or we don't feel like doing it today. It doesn't make any difference. It's still there. still the word of God. Okay, now on page 84, I want to take you on a little visit to the Old Testament because we want to answer a question. On the, uh, if you look on the first major paragraph there on page 84, I, I have the one labeled the issue. Let, if you read with me here through this, I, there's a point that I want to make, and I spent time typing it out, so if you just follow with me in that paragraph. The necessity of a canon for proper functioning of a covenant, the role of a canon in ruling spiritual matters of the believing community, and the proper boundaries of a canon are important factors in canonicity. One canon should insist upon inerrantly inspired scripture in the autographs of the original writings. The problem which must be faced, however, is this. What good is the canon 
if it has not been accurately preserved throughout history so that the Word of God is available today? What good is an inerrant autograph if there are no texts today which precisely reflect it? Now watch this one. Watch the next sentence. Quasi-biblical cults that rely on post-biblical texts like Islam and Mormonism try to contrast the supposedly unbroken line between their original text and today's text of, of the Bible. It is important, therefore, for us to examine the preservation of biblical writings. Let me diagram what I'm talking about here. Here's the argument. The Mormons, typical of, of an extra-biblical cult, by extra-biblical cult, we're not name-calling them, this is just a theological designation. You know, here is the New Testament. The New Testament ended at a point in time, just like the Old Testament ended in a point in time. Prophetic line originating the scriptures terminated. The scriptures were done. Don't have to. God's finished talking. Now we have to listen to him and think about what he said. Given us 2,000 years to think about what he said. And yet we have these people always want another word from God. I've got plenty of problems with what he's already said. I don't need any more. All right. So what happens is long comes somebody down here and, and they get this thing that Somehow the Bible's old and decrepit and we need a fresh word from God. So they come out with some of their text. And their text was written between a year, but because it's more recent, we have continuity. And here we are in 1998 and we're real close because we have the originals and we're very close to the originals and we're a lot closer to that guy than we are over here. So this book tends to take the, take the center stage away from the scriptures. It's a classic maneuver. Of course, the problem is that this book doesn't, have, doesn't do what as far as this. How do we know that that's not canonical scripture, by the way? What two tests do we use? Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. And their teachings here don't mesh with the teachings over here. So no, there's not a continuity between those two books. But the argument that is used to attract your attention and get your loyalty, get your trust built up in these books is because they're recent. Why? We have all the texts back to those. I was just reading an apologist for Islam, and his whole point was that the Koran, why? All this, we have this dictation back in Muhammad's day, and the caliphs preserved the text, and, and it's all so close. We, we, we're not like the Christians and the Jews, where this text just kind of flowed along in history, and we have all these pieces. So we want to deal with that. We want to show then how the text was preserved. Now we're going to divide the problem in half. For, for tonight's sake, all I'm talking about is the Old Testament. Okay? We just developed the principle out of the old. We'll get to the new sometime. The Old Testament. The Old Testament text stopped here. Who was active in producing the Old Testament text? They were called the prophets. They stopped, the text stopped. Then you have this problem. So let's deal, let's cut the problem in half. We have problem A and problem B. Problem A is, how did the prophets preserve the text? Okay, that's one problem. Then after the prophets went away, how was the text preserved? We don't know exactly all the details on this province of God, but what can we say about the preservation of the text from the way it's handled by believers? In this case, how does the New Testament handle the Old? 
If you look in the center paragraph of page 83, I take you over to De- Jeremiah 36. So let's turn to the Old Testament tonight, to Jeremiah chapter 36, and we're going to see an incident that happened in Jeremiah's career that lets us peek into, if, as it were, the processes that God used historically to keep his text going during the time of the living prophets. Jeremiah 36. You want to be familiar with this, this chapter or log it away on a note or something because it's a, it's a good chapter to show you how close the Word of God came of being destroyed in history and what God did to preserve it. In Jeremiah 36, verse 2, the word, verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Joash, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, bring them into the house of the Lord, that is, into the temple, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. And then it describes what went on, and they, they got together, brought him into the house, into the chamber, verse 4. Verse 5, I set before them men of Rechabites drink wine, but they said, We do not drink wine. But the son of our father commanded, You shall not drink wine. You are your sons forever, and you shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant a vineyard. But in tents you shall dwell all your days. And we have obeyed this voice. And, oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's 36. The word of God came. Oh, it's that, that, we got that one right. Um, okay. In verse 36, verse 2. Here we are. Okay. Take a scroll. This is God talking. Okay, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now look at, this actually shows us how Scripture was generated. This is a neat picture of how Scripture came into creation. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 36, 1. Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. So this is actually how part of the book of Jeremiah got created. Perhaps the house of the Lord, house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and I will forgive their mercy, forgive their sin. And so Jeremiah called Baruch. And Baruch, now look at this, verse 4. Here's how the scripture was generated. Baruch wrote at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him on a scroll. Just like probably Paul did. They had people that would write for them. Maybe their handwriting was bad as mine or something. And they went ahead and had somebody that could at least print clearly. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm restricted, I cannot go into the house of the Lord, so you go, you read from the scroll which you have written. And that's restriction, by the way, is what we were getting into in the chapter 5, leading up to this chapter. He says, go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation, the words of the Lord, to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. And you go read to them. So he did. In verse 17 and 18, the people that hear him reading this scroll ask him a question. And they ask, verse 17, saying, tell us, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? And Baruch said to them, he dictated all these words to me and I wrote them with ink on the book. And then the official said to Baruch, go hide yourself. You and Jeremiah do not anyone know that you're here. So they went into the king and the king 
did this. Verse 21. Now, here, watch what happens to the scroll. Then the king sent Jehudah to get the scroll. He took it out of the chamber. Judah read it to the king, to the officials. Now, in verse 22, the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning the brazier before him. And it came about when Judah had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed. Yet the king and all of his servants who heard these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though they entreated the king not to burn, he would not listen to them. So there's the picture of arrogant man. In those days, they didn't use separation of church and state to get rid of the Bible. In this day, they used a knife to slice it up and put it in the fireplace. So there's the destruction of the only copy of the book of Jeremiah at that point. So now we've got a problem. We've destroyed God's word. So then what happens? Verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king burned the scroll. And the words which Baruch had written at the dictation, Jeremiah is saying, take again another scroll. Write upon it all the words that were on the first scroll. And it goes on to describe the process all over again. God is determined that his word will go forth and it will not be destroyed by anyone, including the, civil, the highest authorities in the land are never going to be able to destroy the word of God. The point we want to make here is the function of the prophets. When the word of God was destroyed, who rewrote it? It was the prophets. See how prominently the prophets played this role? Israel is a chain of prophets. And you remember this because... When you think about Chinese religion or Indian religion or some of the other competing religions, where's their line of prophets from century to century to century to century, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and so forth? Huh? Where's the line of prophets? But you see, Israel has a unique characteristic in history. There's that constant prophetic voice, century after century, saying the same thing from the same Lord of Revelation. Now, Let's turn to some other functions of the prophet. Let's go back over to the book of Judges. Because I just want to dip into some pieces of the Old Testament to show you evidences of what these guys did and how we can thank God for these men who some of them, many of them, we don't know their names. Only a few of their names are recorded in Scripture. But these guys were faithful. They treasured the Word of God. It was the authority to them. They loved it. They protected it, often at the expense of their lives. And... They nurtured it and kept it, kept it clear and readable. Now, in Judges chapter 18, verse 30, here's, a, here's what we call a, a little comment. This is a, a case in point where, obviously, after the text had been written and circulated, it was updated. Notice in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 30. Sons of Dan set up for themselves a graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests of the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Well, now, when was Judges written? Let's think back to our history. Now, we've all gone through the history of Israel here in the evenings, uh, uh, Thursday nights. So, think back through to the earlier events. Judges was back here. Conquest and settlement. Okay? Since that time, there's been the reign of David. There's been the era of Solomon. It was the kingdom was divided. Kingdoms in decline. And here's the exile. Here's the captivity. So in verse 30, how do then, in the book of Judges, do we find some comment about the captivity? 
Well, it's clear that the prophets went back here and, and updated an area that might not have been clear to the readers. Did they have the authority to do it? You bet they did. Can we do that? Absolutely not. See, the scriptures say, you will not add to my word, and you will not take away my word. There's a curse place. Anybody that dares do this. See, that's the difference with the prophets. When these people were walking around claiming to be prophets, I like to see what, watch what happens here. These guys had clear-cut authority to go in here and update the text. But how arrogant for anybody today to go back here and try to update the text. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel 9.9. There's just a couple of more of these places. And actually, many of them, but I just want to show you two or three of them tonight just so you can see what I'm talking about when we talk about the prophets protecting the Scriptures and updating it. In uh, 1 Samuel 9, 9, here's an explanation that was injected into the text Later after the text was, was uh, originally written. Formerly in Israel. See, it's, it's there as an explanation because the readers later on, centuries later, wouldn't have understood this thing that was going on in 1 Samuel 9. So it's almost like a footnote put in there. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer. For he who was called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. See, it's written after the text. Who did that? The prophets did that. They had the authority to go in and massage and tweak the text. That was their job. Why did they have to do that? Why do you suppose this explanatory note's in there? Let's think about it. It's an explanatory note. Why bother with an explanatory note? To explain. Why do you want to explain? To make the Word of God what? Clear. So people can understand the Word of God. God wants His people to know His Word. And that's the ministry of the prophets, to make the Word clear. Not add their own little opinions, not replace the Word of God with something else, but make the text clear. Okay, first, 2 Samuel 18.18, 18, and that would be enough to get the idea across. See, someday in heaven, we'll get a chance to talk to these guys. Go up and ask them. Hey, when you put that note in there, when did you do that? And who did that? Find out who the guy was. Maybe they had a committee that did it. I don't know. In 1818, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar, which is in the King's Valley, for he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom Monument to this day. What's this day? Whenever this note was put in there. Why, why do you suppose that particular note is in there? I'll tell you, when I went to Israel many years ago, one of the things that impressed me was every place that is historically important to those people, they have a monument. I mean, at one time, there was a popular song among teenagers in Israel, and it, it motivated them to cross this this uh, no-man's land between the uh, Jordanian army and Israel around Petra. The mystique was to go to Petra. 
And there was this teenage song that was played in Israel, to, and the teenagers got enraptured with this idea, and they, a couple of them decided they were going to go across. They told by the Israelis, don't go across there, because you're going to get shot. You know, the Jordanians don't like Jews. Well, these kids went across there, you know, you can't tell them anything, so they have to learn the hard way. Well, they learned the hard way. They went over there and they got shot. But you drive along that area today, and there's a monument. There's their names in Jew, in Hebrew. Age, 16, such and such. Age, 15. Age, 17. And it's all the listing of those kids. Um, you drive up to Jerusalem. And in 1948, when the, uh, they didn't have any tanks, and so to break into Jerusalem, they poured, put uh, welded steel plate on buses. That was their tanks, the only tanks they had. And they kept driving up, and the Arabs would shoot up the buses and kill them and so on. And along that road, you'll see monuments. This was the two, two buses were, were destroyed on the road here. Here are the names. Name, 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 date. And so after you go around, you see this again and again. It's always monuments. It's always either a, uh, a natural rocks with a, with a plaque on them or sometimes it's a, you know, a poured monument. But you get the impression real quick driving around that it's important for them that the person's name be associated with what happened at a particular time and place. These are not fairy stories. They happened at the corner of this road and that road at a certain time certain day and a certain month of a certain year. And it's the same kind of flavor you see here. This absence monument. In other words, at the time that note was put in there, you could walk down there and see Absalom's monument. No question where it was. Okay. So what we've dealt with is part of this problem. The problem being that we have the... see, where's my problem chart here? Problem A, during the prophets, the prophets preserved the text. Now what we want to deal with is, after the prophets go away, how does the text get preserved? We don't know how the text gets preserved, other than the fact that we know that the text has a continuity to it. And I'm going to show you with a test case. Here's, here's our argument. We're not going to use the New Testament. We're going to use the Old Testament. The Old Testament ended here. What happened over here? Jesus Christ came and the canon reopened and we call the new editions the New Testament. Here's a test. We can go to this point, look back in time, and ask ourselves, how did Jesus and the apostles here treat the text here? There was a 400-year gap here. And during those 400 years, the text was transmitted along these lines so that in Jesus' day, you have this, you have this, and you have this. You have three text cycling. Remember, Jesus and the apostles lived between what period of time? Between minus 100 and plus 100. So they had a variable text, and they quote from all of them in the New Testament. And you say, well, gee, um, <laughs> how can you be sure that the text was preserved for those 400 years. There's no prophets around. They weren't amending the text. They locked it up. Nobody was messing with it. <clears throat> okay? Let's look at some, some three verses. Well, actually, I'm going to show you four verses in the New Testament where the New Testament authors do something in their deductions 
about doctrine in an Old Testament text. And we want to look how they do this. Let's turn to Matthew 22, 32 first. Matthew 22, 32. There's this Jesus now. And he's building an argument. And we want to look at the assumptions, the hidden assumptions in this argument. Matthew 22, 32. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but he's God of the living. Now, that particular verse, if you have a marginal reference, is a quotation from what? Somebody check on their margins? Old Testament text, right? Exodus. Now, what is Jesus quoting that text for? Okay. Verse 31. The argument that he's getting into is an argument over the resurrection. In verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, he cites the text of Exodus, he is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. Now, that is a hard argument. You diagram the logic of this argument, there's four or five steps in here. Let me try to summarize them for you. The argument is that there's a present tense in, in that citation. I am the God. Not I was the God. I am the God. What is he arguing for? He's arguing that God is always present and the believers are always present and to be fully present with God, we have to have our resurrection bodies. That salvation of the soul is not enough in the Bible. That's Greek. In the Hebrew mind, it's the soul and the body, the material and the immaterial that must be saved. So Jesus says, if you're going to have God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and, and these guys are going to be worshiping him forever and ever, and, he, and Yahweh is going to be their God, they have to have a resurrection body. They lost their other bodies. So his argument is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 31, he prefaces the quote by saying, it was spoken to you by God. That is, to the Jewish nation. Spoken to you by God. And he says, he quotes the verse. So now let's look at this text argument. Regardless of which text type he cites here, he's saying that they are in the presence of the word of God spoken to whom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When? When were the dates of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Between 2000 and 1800. What time is it now, at the time of Matthew 22? It's after zero. 30 AD, something like that, 28, 27, somewhere. So now we have 27 plus at least 1800. So we're talking 1900, about 1900 years between the time God spoke and this time. Have you uh, not read verse 31? Not remember. It's not oral tradition. Verse 31, he uses the verb to read. What, you've got a book to read? You've got to read something. So clearly he's talking about a text that they were read in the synagogue. And he says that text is so accurate that I can argue on the basis of a verb tense. 
over 19 centuries. Jesus, not having the PhDs of modern skeptics, didn't understand that the text might have gotten contaminated along the way, Jesus. You, you forgot about that. It's only the Son of God. You know, he wrote the text. All right, let's look at another particular reference. Luke 16, 29. This gets into a more sobering application of this truth, what it means to us today. In Luke 16, it's a story, uh, it's a story tells of Lazarus. Verse 22, background, it came to the end. The poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's the site of Old Testament saints before the Lord rose. Rich man died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for my agony with this flame. By the way, Jesus never talked about hell. Try this one on for size. And please notice this person doesn't go extinct. This person doesn't go unconscious. A very sobering passage here. This is what it looks like in this next life to come when you are in hell. Sobering passage that you're conscious. And worst of all, you're conscious of what you could have done. And so he says, Abraham, have mercy on at least send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. Abraham said, child... Remember that during your life, you received your good things and Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. Fixed. In order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and none may cross over from there to us. A little side note here. Remember the diagram that we always draw on good and evil? We point out in the Christian view of evil... What do we notice in the right side of that diagram? We notice that there's a separation. See that? That's the Christian solution to evil. You see, Pete, we really are so thoughtless and sloppy when we worry, when we fuss at things. We're fussing because there's evil in history and we want to get rid of it. So then God says, I'm going to. I'm going to separate it. Now we're fussing at him because he's separated. But what's he supposed to do? And this is what's happened. Here, during a time of good and evil between the fall and the judgment, there's a time when repentance works. That's a time when grace functions. See, the problem is that when you pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be on earth as it is in heaven, and you want to resolve and get rid of the evil, suffering and sorrow, here's what we're praying for right there. The horrible thing is that once that event occurs, this is a great gulf fixed and there's no more room for repentance. The day of grace is ended. Grace does not go on forever. So here's the situation. This guy is caught. Verse 26 says there's a great chasm and that you can't cross it. This is the time for repentance. This is the time when we can make a choice. Then it's too late. Then he says, I beg you, Father, you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. 
And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, isn't this a striking thing? They have Moses and the prophets? When was Moses and the prophets? A couple of centuries before this, I might add. Right? So what does he mean when they say they have Moses and the prophets? Well, he says that they have the text. What do they read in the synagogue every Sabbath? They unscroll the scroll and they read Moses and the prophets. Well, but he says, but Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Of course, that's prophetic. They didn't. And one one did rise from the dead. And he said to them, now look at the sobering point he makes here. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, is there any problem in there? Do you notice any hesitation that, well, we don't really be sure whether we have the real text or not. We can't really be sure that the text shows what Moses wrote. That might just be contaminated, might be corrupted or something. No. This, we're talking about heaven and hell here, and we're talking about responsibility and culpability, and it's being measured against the text. Not some autographer that's centuries old. This is the contemporary text that's going on here that's being cited as a standard of judgment. So, no matter what's going on here, between minus 100 and plus 100, the text may be solidifying and lots of versions around, but Jesus claims that everybody in those synagogues is being held accountable to the text. Okay. At least we have a choir operating in the background tonight. Let's uh, go to Acts 15.21. It's not even Halloween yet. <laughs> okay. In Acts 15.21, this is a church council. Very critical church council. One of the first in history. Trying to solve a theological problem. And they make their judgment, verse 19 and 20. And then in verse 21, this statement occurs. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is what? Read. He is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Can anyone back out? See, the question you want to ask yourself, if this contamination of the text is a really serious problem, then can't you get off the hook here? Couldn't you argue that, well, I mean, we can't be sure. Moses, we have Moses read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Maybe the text is corrupted. You think that excuse is going to hang? I mean, I don't think so. This is the apostles talking and the last verse we went to is Jesus talking and they're both saying that I am held accountable for the text that I'm hearing and that's good enough to condemn me or to give me the gospel. Now, finally, we come to a really neat argument. So I'm going to take the last verse tonight, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. Now, if the other verses didn't convince you, this one ought to. About the preservation of the text after the prophets died away. Remember, we're in category B type problem. 
first half of the lesson tonight, we're in category A. We showed you how the prophets massaged the text when the prophets were around to massage the text. Now we're category B, and we've got a 400-year gap, and we're asking the question, did Jesus and the apostles accept the text as the Word of God? Not just saying that the text was an autograph. That's true. But they said more than that. They said the text that I have in my hands that's read every synagogue, that is the Word of God. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, a point is made by this author. It's the story of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the guy in Genesis 14, you know, he shows up and there's no comment in the text about who he was the son of. Usually it's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and the son of so-and-so. He just appears in the text without any kind of introduction. So the author of Hebrews picks this theme up and he says in verse 14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning its priests. And this clear is still if another priest rises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. And of course, he goes on and points out Melchizedek had no gene genealogy. But in this case, as he builds this whole issue of Jesus being like Melchizedek, the priesthood being like Melchizedek in the sense that Melchizedek had no genealogy, Jesus was not of the right tribe to be in the Levitical priesthood. Why? What tribe was Jesus? Judah. But he makes the point in verse 14 for our purposes tonight, get moving now from the theology to the text. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe, now look at this clause, with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. What's, what's the logic behind verse 14? Let's think about it. Let's, let's catch the argument. It says, Moses doesn't connect the tribe of Judah in any way with priests. How do you know that? You're sitting in a Jewish synagogue in 30 AD. Or this might have been written later, 40, 50, whatever. Whatever date. Okay? You're sitting as a faithful Jew in a synagogue. You hear Moses written. And you're drawing a conclusion that Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. How do you know that? What's the assumption of this argument? That the text must be inviolate. Because suppose a section where Moses might have said that dropped out. See, the, the presupposition of the entire New Testament is the textual preservation of the Old Testament. The New Testament arguments don't make sense unless the Old Testament text is preserved in toto and becomes the living Word of God, or is the living Word of God. Okay. If you look on page 86 of the notes, I want to conclude with an application to the observation about the Bible and language. Reading from the top of page 36, and this is the kind of thing, people, that we want to learn as Christians to do. And that is, when we read the text of Scripture, we're not just talking about religious things here. Because the Word of God is the Word of God, and He created the universe. When you go to the Word of God, you pick up truths about every area of life. Every area of life. You can teach math out of the Word of God. If you're permitted to do so without violating separation of church and state, of course. On page 86... 
The proper resolution of the issue, therefore, is that God somehow preserved the Old Testament canonical text during four centuries of prophetic silence such that the existing manuscripts in New Testament times could, for all intents and purposes, be considered as the Word of God. This fact being so, modern believers can be confident that today's manuscripts, too, are the Word of God in spite of obvious textual variations here and there. Textual variations mean nothing as far as the authority of the Word of God today. But it goes further than that. If that all is true, that what we've said is true, it implies something about the nature of language. And that's this last paragraph we're going to look at tonight. The truth of the preservation of canonical text implies something about human language. Human language can have textual and semantic range without nullifying its meaning. In fact, translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek and the subsequent identification of the Greek text as the Word of God by Jesus and the Apostles implies that translation in principle does not nullify meaning either. Translation is possible. After all, why do we say that? After all, it was God who fractured human language at Babel centuries earlier, knowing full well that he would need to disseminate his word to all men everywhere. You see, when God broke up the languages at Babel, it wasn't a, oh, gee, now after he did it, oh, what did I do? I shot myself in the foot. No. God is omniscient. He knew very well at Babel that when he fractured the language, hey, well, we got this under control. No problem here. We're going to deal with this. All I've done there at Babel is I've messed it up so that men are screwed up. But I haven't screwed myself up. I, I'm perfectly okay. God fractured human language, not man. For the gospel to have meaning across multiple languages, remember the gospel is preached in multiple languages, human language after Babel must carry sufficient translatability. It must be able to be translated or God cannot hold accountable any one of us who have come to know Jesus Christ through a language other than Koine Greek. We are held accountable because we have heard the Word of God in our language. Thus, now here's the conclusion as we move over to we introduce Islam. Islam uh, has the idea that the Koran cannot be translated, that they translate the Koran. But the idea is that if you are a believer in Islam, you must learn Arabic in order to read the word of Allah in his language, Arabic. And the reason they hold to that is they feel that the word of God is lost in translation. So there's a, there's a collision here between the theory of language of Islam and the theory of language of biblical Christianity. Thus, the objection of Islam that the word of Allah cannot be translated from the Arabic original and still technically remain the word of Allah is built upon a theory of language foreign to the Bible. Now, we haven't got time to go into the details here, but I want you to notice in this paragraph what I've touched on. And you want to try to replicate this thinking. If you've got a problem with language, studying language, translation, think about it in the terms of biblical history. What do we know about language? But let's just conclude with this. Maybe you're grappling, teaching reading to, to students. Maybe you're teaching how to interpret text. Uh, this is a very anti-language 
culture we're living in. We grunt. We don't speak. And, and the music and everything else is, is, is into that mode. So it's, you're fighting just to have, be able to speak a vocabulary word. Have a subject go with a predicate. So when we think about language, let's ask ourselves, let's discipline ourselves to think. How do you do that? How do you start thinking about it correctly? Here's how you start thinking about it correctly. You think back to the framework. What does each one of these events, does any of these events teach me anything about language? Well, we go back, say, okay, well, maybe I don't think too much about that, but I come back to here. God called Abraham out, and now, what happened with the call of Abraham as far as gospel truth? It was confined to what language? Hebrew. So does that mean if God confines his revelation to Israel to the Hebrew language, it can't go into Ugaritic, it can't go into Aramaic, it can't go into Arabic, it can't go into Africa, it can't go into Europe? No, that, that doesn't sound right because what did God say to, he called Abraham to do? That what? All the families of the earth be blessed. So, so that warns you that there's something screwy about the idea that language, different languages are impediment to meaning and truth. And before the call of Abraham, what happened? The Tower of Babel happened. And at Babel, we just mentioned that. So that's how you do this. You think about the pegs. Now, you've been through, you know, we've been through here three or four years with all these events. You want to learn to pick these up and use them as little tools. Then you can go back and say, well, what, what if I go back to the original? Way back to the beginning, what do I know about language? Who spoke the first words? God did. And what happened when he spoke, by the way? The universe came into existence. God didn't use an uh, atom-smashing machine to build the universe. He didn't have any tools. Think about that. The only tool that God used, if you call it a tool, is his own word. He spoke and it was done. And then, who did he talk to? He talked to Adam after Adam was created. And he sat Adam down and he described to Adam, I did this, I did this, I call the light good. I referred to this, I call this the earth, I call that the sea. He built Adam's original dictionary for him. Then he said to Adam what? After I give you the dictionary, I've got the basic vocabulary in here. Now, what do you do, Adam? You add to the dictionary. How do you add to the dictionary? By going into my creation and thinking my thoughts after me. I send you on a mystery, Adam. I ask you to go dig into the depths of my creation. I've already thought it out. You'll always find a plan there. It's already named. I've named it. But I'm going to give you an exercise. You go and you name it. You take those animals and you look at them. You see how I designed them. And you call them a name. See, the power of the language is built on God's as the creator. That's the biblical view of language. And motivated that way, we want to learn to read. If children can see that language is the tool that we communicate to our God and our creator with, there's the motivation to read. But if God isn't there, and we're going to pussyfoot around and keep all the big topics out of the school system, out of the language learning process. And some kid says, why should I bother with all that work to learn all that? Why do I have to learn that? I got four-letter words. Covers most of my needs. You see, the point is, they're right. There is no motive to learn. 
apart from the biblical view. It's only in the Word of God that you get all these questions answered. So that's what we want to finish with tonight. And, and hopefully the text, preservation of it, you see that the Word of God has been preserved. There may be variations, but the meanings are there and they are sufficient for our needs. Next week we'll deal with the doctrine of prayer. And the handout tonight that you have is an appendix it's a little section I've tacked on to the fourth pamphlet. I know this is going to delay further getting into the Lord Jesus Christ and getting into the incarnation, birth, death, and resurrection. But I thought about that and I thought that I think we need to understand a little bit about when it says Jesus is the coming King. The King is here. Uh, I will come again as the King. We want to think about the fact, what kingdom? What's the kingdom? So that appendix section that's handed out is the debate over what is the kingdom that Jesus promises to bring about. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have preserved the text. And that shows you you love us, that you're concerned for us, that you've made provision for us. And we thank you that you enable us to obey that word and that you keep after us, that we not be uh, like the rich man in the Lazarus parable who, when faced with the word of God, disbelieved it. We thank you tonight, Father, that you opened our hearts. For in our own sin, we would have turned away, we would have cut up the text like the king did in Jeremiah's scroll. It's as much as we would care for it, were it not for the wooing voice of the Holy Spirit. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. We have time for a few moments here this, this evening if you have any question and answer. Um, I, I'm happy to have a friend of mine here who's an expert in eschatology and church history, Dr. Tommy Ice. He's written several books available in Christian bookstores. Um, he's not selling them tonight, though. <laughs> um, but anyway, if you have any questions uh, on some of the eschatological areas, we haven't touched on that too much yet, but uh, he's one of the nation's experts on it right now. So, do we have any questions on what we've got so far on anything that we've covered would you like to talk well there's the the how um, maybe uh, Tommy can can supplement what I'm saying about I'm not familiar with the source and origin of why this has recently become an issue but the the variations in the text have gone back a number of years and um, what it amounts to is there's an argument of methodology um, because in the 19th century uh, ancient texts of the New Testament were found. Okay. Now, by the way, keep in mind now, uh, let's separate two things, translations and texts. This is why this question you asked, a very pertinent question, David, but it's just, it's got a lot of parts to it. Um, and let me just divide it in, in two parts. First part is whether, regardless of what committee or who does the translating, they've got to come out of the Greek. Okay. Well, the problem is, what is your methodology of picking the manuscripts that you're going to use? Because it's thousands of manuscripts. I wish I brought my New Testament so you could see the notes on the bottom of it, where they say what we call an apparatus. Um, but here's the, here's the dilemma of the methodology. The argument is that the King James... And, and, and all the translations. King James is not the only translation, by the way. There's the Tyndall translation. There's a lot of translations around that time. King James is best known because it is popular. It's solidified. 
If we lived in Germany, it would have been Luther's translation. And we might add that it's another testimony to the power of the Word of God, that it shaped language. German, I'm told by, by Germans, that the German language was largely shaped by Luther's translation of the Bible. It was so influential. And the King James uh, was a contemporary translation when it was written. Uh, it was done, and it shaped largely the English language. It became kind of a standard. But the issue is that when all those translations were done, they were using what we would call a received text. That is, they had the corpus of these manuscripts coming down, passed down through history. And there's hundreds of them, hundreds of these texts. And these guys would sit there and, and carefully look at them, and they'd shepherd these texts into families. And the, they, they would kind of take the, the average reading, so to speak. And this, would be, this is what the King James did. And this is what the subsequent translations did. Until in the 19th century, guys like Count Tischendorf and others um, found manuscripts that are very, very old, going back that the physical piece of manuscript actually was old. It was older than those received manuscripts that went into the King James translation. Uh, and they had some textual differences. And keep in mind, textual differences, the example I gave you, that's what we're talking about now, on the text, not the translation, the text. So the question then became, after the discovery of these early texts, now what do we use for our translations? Do we use the ones we traditionally use and say that those are the normative readings? Or do we take some of these Codex Aleph and Codex Vaticanus and these other that are found in ancient libraries and say, gee, um, maybe these are earlier readings. Maybe these represent a, a reading closer to the time of the apostles. So the question then was, after the 19th century, well, what text do you use when you sit down to do the translating work? And the Westcott and Hort and a few people basically set the tone for most people and created a methodology whereby you use the earlier manuscripts in preference to the received text of the King James so that if you pick up a King James translation, say the American Standard 1901, RSD 1950 somewhere, um, you'll look at the text there and you'll see they're clearly translating from those early manuscripts <clears throat> and putting a lot of weight on them. Um, in the middle of this, when this started happening, uh, by, by 20s, 1920s, 1930s, uh, there were scholars in fundamentalist camp that said, wait a minute, whoa. Does it make sense that God, who has 100% sovereign control over history and providence, let the church go on with these received manuscripts when he knew that the real manuscripts are hiding in a library in the Vatican and wouldn't be discovered until 1900 years later. Now, there was something kind of flaky sounds about that. And then they began to raise the question, maybe the manuscripts that we found in the ancient libraries are crummy copies. Because think about it, they didn't have printing presses then. And the issue there was that if you had a crummy copy of a book, it wouldn't be used much. It would have been saved. The good copies would have been used. Hands, finger grease, ruin the text. And it would be passed on, passed on. So the argument uh, was, uh, the counter-argument, was that we should stay with the majority text or the received text or, you know, that kind of family type of reasoning. 
on the theological basis that God's providence is going to preserve it. Why are we messing around with the early texts when we really have no control over whether they're right or not? Maybe they're just library junk. And so there's that debate. So that's the background for the translation issues. And there are very few translations today, maybe the New King James, I guess. Does that use the received text? Um, the New King James deliberately chose to continue the tradition of the King James text. And I think most of the new translations all go majority. A little different. Okay, so today on the market, the New King James has the deliberate methodology of going with the same kind of, of idea of, of, of being very suspicious about these new, earlier manuscripts. Whereas, most of your other translations have picked up the traditional methodology started in the 19th century. Uh, when we're in doubt, we're going to go with the earlier manuscripts. So that's, that's, that's first background. Now, I think what's happened, and Tommy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think recently it was the NIV that stimulated somebody to start criticizing. Could you give us some background on that? Here. You're well-read in history. So I've got an expert it's here. It's more of a uh, textual, it's not a history thing. There was a guy in Florida in the 1960s named Ruckman in Pensacola, Florida, who started the King James Only thing, it, that's kind of a cult. He has some cultic views and things. And so there's a whole spectrum of people, you know, uh, playing off him. Uh, some people, for example, the Christian Reconstructionists, they like the King James simply because it prever uh, preserves uh, our great English tradition of literature. In other words, uh, you can't read Shakespeare and uh, Samuel Johnson and Without, if, and so learning the King James Bible helps you to uh, preserve our tradition of the English literature. So some people argue for it for that. Then this uh, lady with a master's degree in home ec at Cornell University came out with this book on New Age versions and all this stuff, and she didn't know a thing about uh, textual criticism. Uh, but she basically, you know, attacked everything else because. There was some feminist in the revision committee on the NIV, you know, I think uh, Nancy Hardesty or, you know, one of those uh, feminists in there who was doing some of the English language smoothing, and they fired her, right, you know, within six months, so she didn't have much influence. Uh, you know, they say she's a feminist New Ager, so these are New Age versions, you see what I'm saying? And, and so you get in that. I think a lot of it has to do with, with the same thing that went on in the... When, uh, as to why King James commissioned the King James Version. Uh, when, in the 13, 1400s, when they uh, got into getting the Bible into the English language, because up to through the Middle Ages it was illegal to translate it outside of Latin, which of course was not the original language. It was uh, Greek and Hebrew, but the church maintained a lot of Greek reading, but it basically forgot its Hebrew, although a person here or there knew a little Hebrew. When the Reformation came in, they started learning Hebrew and Greek, and so people. And then they started uh, got under, uh, when they started reforming. Uh, actually, it was the re Renaissance. You know, the idea of let's get back to the sources. And what are the sources? Well, the sources are the original Greek and Hebrew. 
So that led to wanting to translate the Bible into the language of the people. And you had a just a plethora of translations for 200 years from uh, Wycliffe and Tyndale up to the early 1600s, and people were tired of all the translations. And so they commissioned, King James commissioned a group of three different uh, groups, some Anglicans, I think Presbyterians and Congregationalists, and they set up committees and did the King James Version. That's why the Puritans wouldn't let the King James onto the North American continent for a hundred years because it was corrupted because it had Catholic influence. You know, it had Anglican. They used the Geneva Bible, which was the pure translation, you know, done by the English under Calvin in Geneva. And they used the very same arguments against the King James Bible in the 1600s. You will not find any King James Bible in the early 1600s in America. No such animal. Uh, because it was a corrupt translation, you see. And uh, so they... Uh, took a hundred years before that broke down and they allowed it, you know, over here. And it just began, it was revised. By the way, it's been revised four times. And uh, so, you know, if, if these people are into the King James only, then what, you know, what, which version? Usually they go with the 18, whatever, the early 1800s thing. And so I think people are tired of all these different translations, a certain group, and because they do not understand that the authority lies in the original languages and all that kind of stuff, they, uh, you know, and, and you get up and you stand up, you're teaching the Bible and you've got 15 different translations, you know, just some pragmatic reasons. And, and some segments have made it almost into a cult of using the King James uh, Bible. Now, uh, you know, the Old Testament is not a problem. It's a, the Masoretic text is solid. But you get it, like you said, you get into the New Testament. None of the modern translations reflect, you know, the same Greek text, which was based on Beza's fourth edition, which came from Erasmus, who was a Catholic, by the way. You know, I don't know how that got to be, but you know, uh, well. So uh, I think people are just tired of of a lot of that, and uh, some guy gets up and in certain circles and just starts preaching an emotional sermon and I think people get on the bandwagon and you see Ruckman's group out of Pensacola started growing and a lot of, fun, especially Fundamental Baptists is basically where you get this, you know, that uh, get, get on the King James only bandwagon. One of the contemporary things that almost, I guess, wasn't the NIV going to be redone? Uh, they're constantly redoing it, and one episode happened last year or the year before where they had let it out uh, before they financed it because these translations cost money. And they were trying to collect money, and, and in the course of the, the campaign to raise funds to do it, they let it out that they thought it was about time to what they call dynamically translate. Now, this, this, gets into a, this does get into a problem, and where you have you translate idea for idea instead of the text, and they wanted to deal with, we have to reform the masculinity of God, and they were going to make it feminine, and, and oh, gee. Uh, and that isn't a translation as such. That's a translation methodology problem. And, and that, that got around, and enough people fussed about it that I think it turned off their faucet a little bit. Yeah, but 
you know, God translations. The there is a statement in the 1609 edition, 1611. The 1611. I was thinking the Scofield Bible, 1909. Okay. Uh, in the flyleaf of the King James Version, the translator said, "Any translation is the word of God." And I think that's a good. That's a good. Even, you know, it, it's the word of God. Uh, and people understand there's a spectrum of everything on the on the most literal, which is like an interlinear. You know what that is. To the like the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase. You know, over there, and then in the middle you have like King James, for example, that was translated with an emphasis on public reading. Or they went back and smoothed up the text so it has a flow to it. Verses, you'll find in some strange way that the verse is easy to memorize. Uh, in, in some regard, it's easy to memorize the King James, even though it's uh, old English. There's a flow and a rhythm to it, and uh, that's that's part of that magic that was built into the King James. Yeah, and then you have, uh, say, the New American Standard, which actually. So you have developed what's called translation traditions. For example, Wycliffe started a tradition, and translators come in behind a guy that has done a major translation, and they either follow him or don't follow him. In other words, if he translates, let's say, the word baptism, this is what King James uh, translators did. They invented the word baptism as an English word up to that point the Greek word baptizo was translated into immerse or dip. And with Anglicans and all these different people on the committee, they did not want to translate the word, so they tra- they invented the English word baptism to get around that. And so if you have a certain translation tradition, like Wycliffe got going, uh, then uh, they follow that or they come in and revise that. The New American Standard went for literalism. It's the most literal. It's not a paraphrase. It'd be kind of middle right. King James was kind of in the middle. Uh, It's more literal uh, in trying to keep, for example, uh, Greek words as much as possible, translate them by the same English word as possible so you can have correspondence. And uh, they followed a guy named J.N. Darby. Darby did an original translation back in the 1800s. Then the American Standard followed Darby. And the New American Standard is basically two generations removed from Darby. And so you have those translation traditions. The NIV started a whole new thing with this what's called dynamic equivalence. So let me give you an example. And this is a modern, I, I think it's a liberal ideal, quite frankly. And this, this bothers me. I don't recommend the NIV you know, uh, or at least for studying. You you know, if you just want to read the Bible and stuff like that, then that's fine. The the idea is that language, it's based upon, I think, an evolutionary premise of language, that language is evolving, and there's not necessarily a commonality, you know, between ancient people and modern people. Let me give an extreme example of dynamic equivalence. Uh, Let's say... uh, the Lord's table is based upon 
the beverage of the day, which would be wine, and the basic food of the day, which would be bread. And so if you're living 2,000, 4,000 years later and the basic uh, beverage of the day is Coca-Cola and potato chips is the basic uh, staple, then using a dynamic equivalence of thought for thought, you would translate bread and wine as Coke and potato chips. And that would be viewed by these people as a legitimate translation. And this gets into the idea of, of how these scholars, you know, if you look at the text, the Hebrew word for man is man. It's male. And you sit here and you go, now how can they turn that into uh, man-woman? Well, because they're thinking philosophically about language in a totally different way than we do. We think the whole goal is to reflect what the original text says, but they're deconstructing. They are having to take into account the progression, the philosophical change that we have, and so they're, they think that this is a bad translation to not reflect you know, modern philosophy and these kinds of things. And so that's where you get into all these, this trouble with dynamic equivalence. An example in the NIV would be born of the seed of woman in Romans 1. And they translated it a descendant. I'm born of the seed of David, Romans 1.8. And, you know, the Greek word seed, sperma, you know, I think you know what that word means. If you give it a dynamic translation, which is correct, it is a translation, there it means a descendant of David. But you start losing the basis to trace back to Genesis 3 to see the woman and all those kinds of things. So that's the problem with these dynamic translations. I've had a good discussion, but we're running out of time. I know you guys usually get out here at 9. But um, this is a very good question you raised here, Debbie, and uh, you can tell by what's going on here, it's a whole study unto itself. But I think uh, Tommy's pretty well uh, covered the basis on, on that. So let's break up. If you have more questions, we're here, but I know some of you have to get different places.